2: You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today, and as always, I'm joined by editor-in-chief Mark Alley. Hey. What's up, Mark?
1: It's a beautiful fall day. Uh, it's not quite fall yet, I guess. It's end of summer, but it feels like a fall day.
2: Guys, it's not fall. It's very humid outside, so oh, I don't know what sorry. Mark is talking about. Well, I've been
1: about. inside all day, I guess. <laughs>
2: Mark, who's joining us?
1: Uh, Joining us is George Hawley. He's assistant professor of political science at the University of Alabama and frequent contributor to the American Conservative. Before I even uh, knew we were going to invite George on the show, I had already tagged two of his articles in the American Conservative to read, What Americans Think About Open Marriage is the Religious Right to Blame for Christianity's Decline. So he's a um, a man interested in many topics. But in particular, we've invited him because of his forthcoming book, Making Sense of the Alt-Right, which is with Columbia University Press. We're really excited about having him on the show because it's hard to find someone who knows the topic well and can speak about it frankly and fairly.
2: George, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How's your summer been?
0: Hot, but mostly good. I tried something new and to save money, decided I would stay home while I wasn't teaching and watch my three children, ages four, two, and six months.
1: Oh and my I've never
0: been so exhausted.
1: There you go. Exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you're so much bigger than them. You must have more energy.
0: Uh, yes, uh, that's that's the in theory, right? And uh, I should have some sort of authority in my household, but often it doesn't seem like that's the case.
2: Hey, well, at least it's almost the fall. And also you're at a huge college football university, too. So that's a positive thing, I assume.
0: I guess so. Um, <laughs> I haven't yet, yet to go to a game, but eventually I swear I will.
2: Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get into the reason that we're having you on the show. So last weekend, members of the alt-right and white nationalists gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia, for a Unite the Right march. The Friday and Saturday event was organized after Charlottesville officials decided to remove a statue of Robert E. Lee, and it drew a couple hundred supporters. But they weren't the only ones who came out to the streets. Hundreds of counter-protesters showed up, including clergy, Black Lives Matter activists, and anarchists. On Saturday, interactions between the two groups grew violent. One white nationalist plowed his car into a group of counter-protesters, injuring several dozens and killing one woman. That same day, two members of local law enforcement on their way to work at the protest died when their helicopter crashed outside of the city. President Donald Trump's campaign coincided with the increasing mainstream awareness of the alt-right. While public name recognition of this group has increased in the past two years, the full extent of their breadth and popularity are not always as clear. Today on Quick to Listen, we'd like to discuss the true influence and popularity of this community, its connection, or lack thereof, with Christianity, and what role the church could play in fighting its message. Before we get into all of this, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine, and you can order your own subscription at orderct.com slash quicktolisten. Our September issue is going to be hitting your mailbox or your favorite bookstore this week, um, and we have some a really detailed cover story in there about monuments, specifically ones that commemorate our maybe uglier past, um, and what these monuments have to do with the Christian faith. I think it's an article that's extremely appropriate for the larger discussions that we're going on right now, and it's also our cover story. So if you'd like to read that, that's obviously available online, and it's going to be our cover story for our September issue. Again, you can get a copy of that at orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, George, before we hammer you with questions, I just want to take this time for Mark and I to do a gut check, which is when we give our visceral reactions to the news this week. Mark, do you want to tell us how, when you were reading these articles, how you felt?
1: Well, I had mixed reactions. Obviously, uh, one is a little disturbed, to say the least, when we find people in America who have such, seeming to me, hateful and uh, intolerant attitudes. But I was also surprised at the visceral reaction of the Counter protesters as well, and the visceral anger and seeming hate as well, and then the aftermath of all the commentary about it. It was an incident that surprised me uh, for the fury of response to it compared to other things that I think are going on that deserve an equally furious response. But this captured the imagination of the American public in a lot of ways. that surprised me, frankly.
2: So uh, my reaction is, I was a little bit slow to hear about everything that was going on. I kind of didn't catch up with the news until Sunday night. So I think that some of the more kind of like horrible blow by blow of stuff that was happening, especially with this woman dying. Didn't catch me in the same level as if I had been following the news all weekend. But yeah, I think that what was interesting to me is how much I felt like people were really craving leadership on this issue and that there was like specific frustration with the president not explicitly calling out. Those who, you know, kind of had this rally, the you know, the white nationalists and the alt-right who, who did this and that people really wanted that type of vindication of having someone in charge condemn something as evil and not having a place in in society in some ways. Um, And that was the thing that kind of like struck with me is like, what are people really looking for from their leaders? What do they want them to say? Why does it hurt so much, I guess, when leaders don't acknowledge our pain and suffering? Um, And what are we looking for them to like kind of give to us? So that's what I was thinking through. So George, tell us a little bit about what we are saying when we say alt-right and where this name comes from.
0: I'd say that today the alt-right can be accurately described as a white nationalist movement. I don't think that anyone who is seriously involved with it would actually dispute that characterization. At the very least, it is a movement that calls for very explicit white identity politics, Now, in terms of where it came from, the term was born back in 2008 when Richard Spencer coined the term, though he was somewhat uh, inspired by comments made by a paleoconservative named Paul Gottfried. But when the term was initially born, it was fairly ecumenical in the sense that it could be used or referred to just about anyone whose politics were on the right, but who rejected sort of George W. Bush-style conservatism. So alt-right at the time could perhaps apply to uh, a libertarian, for example, or a Ron Paul supporter, something like that. This began to change probably around 2010 when Richard Spencer left his earlier job at an online magazine called Talkies Magazine and started his new venture at that time called AlternativeRight.com, which very quickly moved in uh, much more explicitly racial direction so it's been a term that has been associated with white identity politics for a while Now, a curious thing about the evolution of the term alt-right is that there was a period where it looked like the term was going to be abandoned almost entirely. After just a couple of years of running AlternativeRight.com, Spencer apparently got sick of the term and the brand and shut down his website and stopped using that term. And probably throughout 2014, it looked like it it was done with. But then around 2015, probably around the time that uh, now President Trump declared his candidacy, it started to appear with increasing frequency on things like uh, on social media and in various forums etc. And it started to become sort of a blanket term for white identity politics again. And it subsequently exploded in terms of its, its usage and being used by lots of different people.
2: George, I'm just wondering if you can break down two of the terms that you referred to just now. One of them is white nationalists and the other one is white identity politics. How do you define those?
0: Well, white nationalism is most definitely a, a quite extreme ideology in that what it calls for Ultimately, would be the creation of a white ethno-state that is a new nation in which membership would be restricted exclusively to people of European ancestry. White identity politics is not invariably that radical, but it does suggest that white Americans should organize explicitly as whites to advance uh, explicit white interests, um, which could lead to uh, white nationalist ideals, but not ne- not necessarily. Either way, they're both, uh, I would describe both as of being uh, racist ideologies.
1: We're talking about various and sundry groups who have various sundry names that we tend to identify and lump in with alt-right. Is that correct? I think so. And what they hold in common is either white nationalism or white identity politics. What would be some of the groups that are part of this larger group and how, how would they differ uh, from one another?
0: One of the things that makes the alt-right different from earlier manifestations of the racial right is that it's not really appropriate, for the most part, to discuss it in terms of various groups because the movement for the the time being is still mostly anonymous and amorphous and online. This isn't like the Ku Klux Klan or the National Alliance or some of the uh, earlier uh, ideologically proximate groups that had, say, membership lists, that had lots of face-to-face gatherings. Um, a lot of the people involved in this uh, do so exclusively under pen names or even under um, you know no names at all. or are just posting anonymously on various forums. When we think about groups, I suppose you could think about people who prefer different styles within the alt-right, but it's not as though there are l- multiple large membership-based organizations. I mean, there are some, but that's not really what the alt-right is mostly about.
1: Tell me if this is a stereotype or if it's really true. There just seems to be a tremendous amount of anger and even rage among alt-right speakers and advocates. Is that are there? Is there such a thing as a calm, reasoned alt-right person?
0: There are a number of individuals who do like to present themselves uh, as being calm and reasonable and speaking in the language of of fairness and that sort of thing. If we think about individuals uh, like, say, Jared Taylor. From American Renaissance, he uh, generally attempts to uh, speak in almost a, an academic tone, and this is something that was quite common at a lot of the uh, alt-right conferences hosted by groups like the National Policy Institute, etc. At least until the most recent uh, National Policy Institute event last fall. So, for the most part, it's not so much sort of the stereotype of the uh, you know the foam speckled you know. KKK member that you might see on a History Channel documentary. That's not the exclusive uh, manner in which the alt-right presents itself.
2: Well, so one other way that I've been kind of familiar with how they present themselves is a lot of it has to do with Twitter and just how they present themselves online. I am familiar with people who feel like they have, who say that they have been trolled by the alt right online, or had very graphic images sent to their Twitter accounts, or also been referred to as conservatives. Um, and I'm wondering if you can just talk about what their online presence has looked like as well.
0: Yes. Well, really, it was through Twitter that the alt right was largely able to grow. It's been sort of an interesting thing to watch when we think about, say, at the start of 2015. The alt-right was really this uh, tiny, marginalized little group. But what it discovered was that you can use social media to amplify your message by, in a way, sort of acting like a parasite on larger uh, uh, figures, people with bigger platforms. The The thing about Twitter is the ease with which you can interact with the major journalists and celebrities you know the folks who have you know blue check marks next to their names and by sort of relentlessly uh, and aggressively trolling um, Journalists, particularly Anti-Trump journalists um, Jewish journalists, etc They were able to, in a way, create Almost like this digital Potemkin village, making it appear That there is this massive Online Nazi army That is uh, taking over social media When the reality was At that time, most people When they went on to Twitter Didn't see very much of that But the big names were seeing a lot of it. And it spurred a lot of these, uh, you know, sort of breathless think pieces like, what is this alt-right? Why am I seeing myself, uh, you know, photoshopped into gas chambers, etc. And in a sense, they used uh, these bigger names to create this meme that the alt-right was this massive growing phenomenon, which ultimately became something of a self-fulfilling prophecy.
2: What is the biggest misconception that The press and the public, we could look at those distinctly, have about the alt right?
0: Um, I think that some of the misconceptions are probably starting to wane just as um, it, it is being talked about more and more. The Overall size of the alt right is still probably exaggerated in in terms of the total number of people that are actually involved in it. It's very very difficult to come up with hard numbers in terms of who is in the alt right. But I would say it is still a a, a marginal and and small movement. Um, you know, yes, it can get now you know a few hundred people together in the real world, but that is something that has historically been true of other white nationalist groups in the past.
1: I've heard from some reports that there's a, a mixture of dedicated and ideological alt-right people and sometimes people who come to the rallies because they just want a good time in the sense of being a part of a movement that causes a lot of trouble. Is that your impression as well, or is that a stereotype?
0: I think that would definitely be true of a lot of the people who were involved with it on the internet. That is, that some people really are just engaging in sort of nihilistic trolling because it's Fun. I don't think that I would say that that's true about the type of people who would show up for a rally, given the risks involved in doing so, especially with the risk of having your identity exposed. I don't think that anyone would put themselves in that kind of harm's way just because they wanted to uh, have a laugh.
1: You know, in reading and preparing for this uh, over the weekend, uh, I kept on seeing journalists say the alt-right is a movement that's growing. At the same time, people are saying it's hard to uh, put actual numbers to the extent of the movement. So, I mean, what can we we say? Is there any way we can measure that or even say that, make that sentence and have it make any sense?
0: I'm not entirely convinced that it's growing, at least not at the same sort of exponential rate that it saw in 2016. Getting hard numbers for this is is very difficult. Sort of the best proxies that we can find are things like traffic stats for the major alt-right online publications. But even these are obviously imperfect measures at best my intuition is that the movement has probably plateaued for the time being. That's more of an intuition than something that I can, you know, point to hard numbers to to prove.
2: You know, for years, the Republican Party has been heavily associated with conservative Christians and evangelicals. And I'm just trying to figure out what is the relationship between alt-right and this, like, faith dimension that has been played a huge role in the GOP?
0: Um, the alt-right is now, I think, largely, mostly ignoring the religious question. And this may, sets it apart from earlier uh, far-right movements. Obviously, the KKK presented itself as an explicitly Protestant movement. Uh, In contrast, William Pierce's National Alliance was very explicitly anti-Christian, and in fact, uh, Pierce would say that you cannot be a member of the National Alliance and belong to any sort of uh, Christian organization. The alt-right seems to be of the view that Christianity is becoming largely irrelevant at least in American politics. And as such, it seems to just be largely avoiding the subject, um, you know, not wanting to alienate potential members who still identify as Christians, but also at the same time, making sure to denounce Christian leaders like say Russell Moore or Pope Francis who are pushing forth a message that is at odds with their own.
1: This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com.
0: Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders, to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com
1: today. I've read some stuff that suggests that they are, they explicitly repudiate Christianity because of its uh, talk of uh, egalitarianism and the equality of all people, as well as an interest in European pagan uh, religion, pre-Christian. How extensive is that?
0: Um, There's diversity of opinion within the movement. Richard Spencer, for example, has for years made his hostility to Christianity very apparent and not uh, hidden that at all. Um, I'd say a large number of folks in the alt-right are largely indifferent to religion. There is within the alt-right some contingent that identifies as pagan, that is, identifies with pre-Christian European religions, be they uh, Greco-Roman or Norse, probably not so much because they think that there really is such a god as Thor than because they think that those earlier religious traditions represented a uh, more helpful uh, ethos for their movement.
2: So at the same time, though, and I, and please correct me if this is a wrong assumption. It does seem that this all right um, movement does have a strong hatred of Islam. At the same time, does that have anything to do with Christianity?
0: Well, this is actually a, a sort of an interesting issue um, within mainstream conservatism, at least an element of mainstream conservatism, you know, the very hardcore strand of Islamophobia has been considered acceptable. Sort of you can say negative things about Muslims that you would not... Feel free to say about other religious minorities or other racial or ethnic groups. The alt right seems to take a different view. While certainly the alt right has nothing good to say about Islam, their problem with Islamic immigration, for the most part, doesn't seem to be so much that they're Muslims than that they're not white. That is, they don't want African immigrants, whether they are Christians, Muslims, or animists. They don't want uh, Arab Christians to be invited into Western countries any more than they want Arab Muslims. So their focus on race per se, means that they tend to be less interested in questions of religion.
1: How much of this is a backlash against identity politics among African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, and others, and various uh, political agendas we find, especially at uh, elite universities. Uh, Apparently, I understand that a large number of the alt-right are college-educated, and they've lived through a period in which uh, this sort of identity politics has come to the fore and there seem I'm getting some impression they're just resentful and reacting against it.
0: Well, uh, among the people in the movement that I spoke to, especially the some of the younger ones, what sounded like was a common theme was that uh, a catalyst for their radicalization on these questions was Major racial controversies that occurred during the Obama administration. So, the Trayvon Martin shooting and subsequent trial, the shooting of Michael Brown, etc. So, while these events spurred uh, things like the Black Lives Matter movement, there was a counter reaction to that among some percentage of the white population, which viewed this ascendant minority identity politics as a threat and asserted a new identity politics of their own. Uh, So I think that there is some truth to the idea that this was in some ways a reaction to other brands of identity politics that were occurring at the same time.
2: I'm curious what your thoughts are about just the fact that this movement exists at all, what that kind of says about the role of Christianity in the United States today.
0: It is in a way, related to sort of the waning of Christian influence in public discourse. Um, You know, for a long time, you know, right-wing politics was focused on the issues of the religious right which you know there was probably a some racial angle to that movement as it was getting off the ground things uh, related to private schooling and school desegregation etc but it was never at its core focused at least publicly exclusively on the racial issue as sort of christianity has been fading into the background of American public life. I think it's opened up doors for other forms of identity politics.
2: So is it fair to say that as we see the rise of the nuns or, you know, folks who are not affiliated with any types of organized religion, um, this just becomes a kind of byproduct? And part of the reason I ask is because from what I understand, the alt-right for whatever its influences in the United States also has support for these type of ideologies in Europe as well, which from what I understand has also become increasingly secular.
0: I mean, I don't want to say that anyone who, you know, abandons Christianity has put themselves on a slippery slope to the alt right because I don't think that that would that is statistically true. So I'm still trying to sort of wrap my mind around that that particular question as to exactly how the role of secularization is is playing into the hands of either uh, the progressive left or the alt right. As I've noted in an article that I wrote For the american conservative a few months ago i was looking to see if feelings of uh, white solidarity um, of uh, feeling a strong sense of white identity was in any way related to one's identification as a christian and i actually found very little in the way of correlation that is that racial attitudes among whites anyway do not seem to be strongly related to religious identity. So, you know, in a way, uh, I think both the alt-right and a number of uh, secular progressives had hoped that, you know, the decline of Christianity would invariably help one of their sides. I'm just not entirely sure that that's true, however. The two may ultimately be Phenomenon that are occurring at the same time, but not necessarily related to each other.
2: To what extent is it fair to to give the alt-right credit for the rise of Trump?
0: Their influence has been overstated. Yes, they were his most aggressive and enthusiastic promoters online, but I wonder if sort of these alt-right memes might have also been alienating to uh, an equal number of people who might have been inclined to vote Republican. Obviously it wasn't alienating enough to cost him the election, But when uh, Hillary Clinton gave her speech in Reno at about this time last year, you know, uh, denouncing Trump and the alt-right and really sort of bringing the alt-right into the national conversation, I am not convinced that that speech didn't have its intended effect on at least some percentage of the electorate. How much, I don't know. Obviously, it wasn't enough to to change the results, but it's entirely possible that the alt-right cost Trump as much as it gained him. Um, That is an empirical question that I'm not quite sure is easily testable. At least I've not thought of a way that it could be tested.
2: The reason why I wanted to kind of ask you this question is just because, you know, the off quoted number of this year is the 81% of white evangelicals who voted for Trump. I think that many of us were surprised by this kind of turnout and also by the amount of evangelical support that Trump got, given his close relationship with the alt-right and the fact that even you know, evangelical leaders didn't do more to distance themselves from this group.
1: Well, one of the assumptions of the question is that he is close to the alt-right, or, or his administration is. is is that a fair assumption to begin with?
0: I, I do think it's true that um, elements of the Trump campaign and of the Trump administration were willing to sort of give, you know, little winks to the alt-right. And and Trump was certainly very late in putting a large amount of distance between himself and that movement. Really, he didn't formally come out and condemn it until after the election, after the um the very controversial National Policy Institute conference in which there was the the video of people making Nazi salutes. How close of a connection I remain a little bit uncertain of. I don't really think that even Trump's most controversial advisors, like Stephen Miller or Stephen Bannon, could be classified as alt-right proper, even if some of their ideas do overlap with the alt-right's message.
2: What makes you say that? Well, I think to say
0: that these figures are the alt, are part of the alt-right would re, would require downplaying the radicalism of the alt-right. That is, you know, if uh, if there was an alt-right administration in the White House, you know, Jared Kushner would be deported, not be a major figure making policy
1: because he's Jewish. Yes. Okay.
0: Um, The alt-right doesn't just want uh, an end to undocumented immigration. It doesn't just want, you know, a a short-term ban on migration from majority Muslim countries. It would like to see non-whites, even those who are here legally or have been born here, to be made to leave the country, which is a, a stance that is, I would say, Qualitatively different than even the most aggressive nativist rhetoric we've heard from people associated with Trump.
2: Gotcha. How do you imagine that the Christian church might respond to a movement? like the alt-right?
0: Well, it's, it's difficult to say, because I think that most mainstream Christian leaders have reacted negatively toward it when we think about, say, the, the Southern Baptist Convention has definitely uh, condemned these types of movements and the sentiments that motivate them. And the response has been mostly among the alt-right to sort of laugh it off as not being relevant or being totally unimportant and not something that is going to help or hinder them in their cause.
1: I think some of the uh, feeling, uh, especially at the, during the Southern Baptist Convention that debated this, is that there may be Christians out there who are tempted by uh, alt-right uh, ideology, and that, that it was sort of a preliminary strike to say this is not something that belongs in the Christian Church, end of conversation. But from what you're saying, it doesn't sound like there is much overlap between conservative Christianity and the alt-right.
0: Um, at least not... Uh... Ideologically speaking, at least th- this manifestation of the racial right um, is not really presenting itself as a Christian movement, and, and much of it is presenting itself as explicitly anti-Christian, so I'm not convinced that these statements by Christian leaders are going to do the movement very much harm, but you may be right that it, such statements might keep people who might otherwise be interested in these sorts of ideas from moving in that direction. That's very difficult for uh, me to prove one way or the other, however. And in terms of which denominations tend to do a better job, it turns out that the uh, empirical studies that I've seen do not necessarily match what a lot of people would expect. It turned out that uh, uh, a study that was done... this was a few years ago, trying to see which denominations were more welcoming to membership inquiries from uh, people with... Actually, that uh, was our cover
2: story. (laughs) Oh,
0: was it? Okay. The one one that found that it was, in fact, the evangelical denominations that uh, did a better job of enthusiastically responding to these inquiries. So um, it's a little bit curious, uh, interesting that that's the way that that worked out, because it seems as though Formally, um, you know, the official statements of the the mainline Protestant denominations seems to be more aggressively, you know, anti-racist, but in practice isn't necessarily always um, exhibiting that.
2: I think that part of the reason why all of these end up conflated in people's minds are that arguably President Trump's biggest supporters either come from the alt-right or are represented by these evangelicals who serve on his advisory board um, who have made various statements this year, often at times when um, the Trump administration is at a particularly difficult political point. Um, And so in some ways, they might be conflated more than in normal circumstances.
0: That could be. Um, Another point that I think is important to note is that when we think about who the sort of the marquee names are of the religious right, it's very clear that there is, I don't want to say a leadership vacuum, but there are not the same sorts of, you know, household names that there were a couple of decades ago. Back in the 90s, everyone was talking about Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, etc. as being these very important figures. Back in 2004, people were saying, oh, that these religious right leaders, they were the real kingmakers in American politics. They're responsible for George W. Bush's election. I don't know who, what, what Christian leader today has that sort of influence with anyone anymore, in the sense of having the same sort of mass following that that first generation of religious right leaders had. It's, I've, been, it's been hard for me to sort of make sense of what is. Uh, what is the significance of these evangelical spokespeople coming out enthusiastically for Trump? Because I'm just not sure how many people are are listening to what they have to say.
2: All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening to the show. You can give us all your feedback at CT Podcasts. That is our handle on Twitter, or you can go on Facebook at Facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy this week and also where they can be found online. Mark, do you want to go first?
1: Yeah, what's going to bring me joy is something I'm going to go pick up on Friday. For my uh, wife's and my anniversary, I bought us a canoe. Mm
2: Where so are you we going can take canoeing up
1: canoeing in our elderly years where so we'll go to lakes you know you know there's just a thousand one lakes in Minnesota and Wisconsin and Illinois and I thought that might be something we could actually continue to do for many years hence and it would be a lot of fun so
2: where are you gonna get it from
1: from a uh, a manufacturing plant, I don't know what you call it, just the place that makes them in Michigan. A canoe factory. (laughs) A canoe factory, (laughs) exactly. Cool. You can reach me at uh, The Galley Report, which you can subscribe to by uh, signing on to uh, Christianity Today slash The Galley Report. That galley is spelt with an I instead of an E-Y. And you'll be, I, I basically every week supply links and commentary on those links, and not irregularly, I sometimes link to a gentleman named George Hawley and some of the stuff he writes.
2: Cool.
0: George? I am hopeful that I will have joyous news today. This was uh, my oldest son's first day of pre-K, so I have my fingers crossed that uh, when I get (laughs) home, um, I will hear that it was an amazing experience for him, and I will uh, be eager to hear how it went.
2: Awesome. Good luck. <laughs> Indeed,
0: um, Life will be much easier if he doesn't fear going to school. So um, wish us luck on that. And if you want to find out more about my work, you can visit my website, which is simply www.georgeholly.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at George Hawley, UA.
2: How do people spell Hawley?
0: H-A-W-L-E-Y.
1: And I would, uh, he sounds, George sounds like he's a little shy, but I would put a plug in for his book, Making Sense of the All Right, which alt-right, which is going to be published, what, in another month?
0: Uh, yes. And uh, there on my website, there are links to all five of my books.
1: Okay, great.
2: All right. My precious moment this week is that I went to Broadway in Chicago last night. It was very crazy. There were thousands of people there, and I ended up meeting and hanging out with two different families. There was one family that drove up from Indiana, and there was another family that was vacationing from Ireland, and I got to hang out with both of them and watch a little bit of Broadway, which is really fun, and I enjoyed it a lot, but the crowds are crazy. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to the show yet again. You can find the show on apple podcast which is also where we ask you to leave a review and tell us what you think of the show thank you everyone who has left a review for us we really appreciate it and you can order your subscription to christianity today by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen and as usual thanks to richard clark and Allred for their work producing the show we'll see you all next week